Legacy Series is a part of Cork Report Podcast Media. To find us, search for Cork Report in Spotify, Apple, Google Plus, and big thanks as always to Dave Miller for the opening music. Check him out at DaveMillerGuitar.com. My name is Paul Brady, and I'm a regional editor at Cork Report. And before we get into today's episode, our first of 2021, I want to take a moment to thank the following guests who took time to speak to me in either the podcast or Instagram live format in 2020. Here we go. Author, critic, and wine scientist, Dr. Jamie Good. Author and critic, Jason Wilson. Director of the International Wine Center in Manhattan, New York, and an MW, Mary Gorman McAdams. Author and wine analytics expert, Kathy Hoyhe. Chicago-based sommelier, Anthony Minnie. Crafted Hospitality National Wine Director, Natalie Grindstaff. Author and jazz and classical music critic for two plus decades at the Detroit Free Press, Mark Stryker. Director of Marketing for the Washington State Wine Commission, David Flaherty. Wine journalist, Carrie Dykes. Sales executive for Cadu Oak Barrels and vice president of the Michigan Wine Collaborative, Gina Shea. Longtime general manager and sommelier for the Jazz Standard and now general manager for Intersect by Lexus, Grant Gardner. Jazz saxophonist John Arabagon, writer and sommelier Courtney Shizzle, and assistant beverage director and director of education for Cork Buzz Wine Studios in Manhattan, New York, Amber Rill. One of the topics that we dove deep on was the subject of jobs in the wine industry, and that's a subject on which I intend to keep diving deep. Occasionally, when I'm feeling lazy, I ask myself, why do I do this podcast that like five people and my mom listen to? Well, not really, but you get my point. And one reason is that during the episode with Anthony Minnie, which was almost entirely on the subject of going after jobs in the wine industry, a then unemployed sommelier in New York City sent a message that simply said, this is very helpful. And that's exactly why we keep going. On today's episode, I spoke to my friend and former colleague from the trenches of the New York City wine bars, Sagan Schultz. Sagan is a medical doctor and has an MBA, both from NYU. He's also a sommelier, certified nutritionist, and personal trainer, perfect for the subject of dry January, health and wellness, in the wine industry, and in general. I look forward every week to cranking these out and would love to hear from any of you as to what kinds of subjects are of interest or suggestions for guests that you'd like to hear from. So shoot us a note to corkreportmedia at gmail.com. Okay, here's Sagan. Sagan Schultz, thank you for donating your time to a Northern Wine Odyssey series. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Where are you right now? Uh, I am where I have been since the beginning of lockdown, which is lower Manhattan in my studio apartment camped out. Gotcha. Um, what, uh, give us the last, give us a synopsis of let's say the last two years or so of your professional life. So let me do, I'll start by telling listeners that Sagan and I met working at Terroir Wine Bar circa 2012 in Manhattan, where we worked on and off over the years, 
And you were simultaneously putting yourself through medical school. You finished med school when? 2014? 2015? Uh, Technically, it was around 2017 because I decided to extend my time in school even further and jumped into an MBA program. And so, yeah, something, something around there. Okay, that's right. So you did you did an MBA and an MD both at NYU, sort of while uh, we were simultaneously working as uh, working at Terroir and and doing this and that and the other thing. So sometime in there, you also created the the prototype that would become your your first product for your company, Wellwell, which. I actually think that I might have tasted it even before, like the the prototype before the prototype. Like that one time when we drove to the Finger Lakes to go taste that Herman Weimer and Silver Thread and back in the same day. So that was like the earliest version of it, I think. Does that sound right? You remember that? Yeah, you probably had something that I was making in my kitchen for sure. Yeah, totally. It was delicious. It was, if I remember, watermelon juice, cherry juice, and lemon juice. And there was like, a caffeine supplement or something in there at that time. But I mean, this was like early, early stages of experimentation and you were just kind of talking to your network about, uh, about getting going. Yeah. That feels like a different lifetime, but that, that sounds about right. (laughs) Okay. So take us back. uh, Let's, let's say two years, give us a, give us a synopsis of of the last two years of your professional life. Um, Yeah. So the last two years have really been, um, quite similar in the sense that I've been running the company that I started full-time since, you know, more or less the end of 2015. So, um, you know, within that, there's, there's a lot, Um, you know, we, I originally launched this brand to the market in 2016 with Whole Foods as our first customer. Um, We basically grew the company through 2016 uh, and through 2017, mostly sort of here in the East Coast and the New York Northeast region. Um, and then it became very clear very quickly that uh, we were going to have to raise a lot more money and you know expand our product line and, and really kind of go to the next level if it was going to be some sort of viable company. And so spent the next sort of few years up until now, well, and still now doing that. So, you know, 2018 basically kept growing the company, um, had a few near-death experiences as any um, early-stage company does, um, ended up raising some private equity money, um, You know, took the company through an entire rebrand product development that year, uh, and then relaunched pretty much, a, uh, for all purposes, a, a new company and a new brand to the market at the beginning of 2019. And so the last two years, to answer your question, um, has really kind of been 2019 and 2020 growing for the most part, a new company and a new brand, um, uh, just, you know, outside of the Northeast and New York region, more nationwide and around e-com, uh, and that sort of thing. So it's been quite the ride. And I guess we should note that this is, this is a healthy product that we're talking about this juice. And you do have a background as quite a health enthusiast. I mean, not only are you a doctor, Technically, well, I don't know. Do you consider yourself a doctor, even though you're not practicing medicine? Yeah. So um, t- the context around that is, I uh, I spent way too much time in school. I, I went to NYU essentially three times. Um, I did my undergrad in neuroscience and then stayed for med school 
and then hopped into the business school program because I wanted to be on the side of fixing healthcare after you kind of do your training. Um, you see a lot of the problems that are in our healthcare system, uh, which are many. And so wanted to really be on the side of fixing that and had almost gone that route out of business school um, with one of the big consulting firms. And uh, because I had raised money and, and was working on this, basically kind of put that on hold for the time being. And so so yeah, I, I'm technically a doctor. I graduated. I have an MD. I decided not to go to residency um, because at that point, I had already decided I wanted to be on the side of kind of helping to fix the system, which um, you don't need to go to residency for. So um, that's kind of what I made the decision to uh, to go out of that sort of pipeline. But yeah, have a have a pretty strong background in in medicine and science and nutrition and all that stuff. Well, and and you know, not every medical doctor does, as we've talked about many times. I mean, nutrition and health this this is not you know necessarily directly linked with being a doctor. But you were always somebody who sort of took that upon yourself. I mean, aren't you a certified personal trainer? Aren't you a certified nutritionist as well? Am I am I imagining that? Yeah. So there. So to back up for a second, um, you're correct. Nutrition is never something that um, was really taught in med school. It, it was sort of, um, you know, we in the U.S. we're in a tertiary care system. It's very reactive, meaning we like to fix things after they happen, which tends to be through medicine and uh, you know pills and and that sort of thing. Um, I think unless you personally have, um, you know, a, you're personally passionate about nutrition and, and health. I think, um, it's, it's widely left out of the sort of medical school education system. Um, that's been changing for sure over even the last few years, it's definitely, um, I think risen to be more prominent. And so that's really good. But I think, you know, even five years ago or six years ago when I was in med school, um, it definitely wasn't the case. I mean, we, you know, even being at a very progressive school like NYU, uh, which hats off to them, but, um, you know, there just wasn't a lot of nutrition curriculum baked in. So I think it really had to be on your own sort of regard. Okay. So, but we can rejoice in that we have a medical doctor here on the podcast that is also a nutritionist and a personal trainer and an all-around health and fitness enthusiast. I mean, we've been talking about this ad nauseum for as long as we've known each other. We And I guess we should mention now that we're we're in, I think we're both doing dry January, yeah? Yeah, yeah, dry January. I think actually, going back, the first time I ever did, or you know, consciously on purpose, did a dry month of you know no drinking was when we did no drink April, like Which, forever ago. Uh, yeah, I think you were the only one who made it the whole month. I think there were a couple of us who lasted like two weeks. Yep, yep, I was. <laughs> I was uh, the only only one. But that was even even that like two weeks. You know, that was back then. I mean, we were all a little younger. I mean, you 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 felt that like we felt that in our bodies, and it was it was something that I think created good habits for for. I think there were three of us who were who were messing around with that at the time. And, and so I want to talk about that. So first of all, so you, so you are doing dry January then. Yeah. Yeah, correct. Okay. Day eight. Day eight. Going strong. Um, it was, yeah, I, I saw a lot of people give up this, this week for, you know, various reasons. Um, 
but I am happy to say that I stayed strong. And it sounds like you did too. Well, you got to beat your previous record of two weeks from last time. So I've done it the last two years. Ah, so you're good. Yeah, I'm good. I feel good. It's, it's not hard. I enjoy it. I mean, I, especially in the last couple of years or maybe in the last year in particular, I, I love uh, just going every week, at least several days with, with out even a drink. Um, and then the whole, when you, when you commit to doing a month, one of the things that feels good is knowing that you're never going to be hungover. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah. because I mean, there's always work events and just there are in, at least in my profession now, there's, there's just times when you have to drink or, or if not drink, taste and spit wine, but nevertheless, it's right in front of you. So there's just so many chances where you're like, ah, how am I going to feel tomorrow? And it's, it's when you commit to that month, people, if you've never done this, it's a really good feeling knowing you're not going to be even the slightest bit fatigued from a hangover the next day. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. And I'll say there's, there's a difference between thinking that and knowing that up front. And then when you're halfway in, reflecting on the fact that you haven't felt that way for whatever two weeks and um you really i mean it, you definitely feel different like very different so i don't know if you've noticed this it might just be because in the last i don't know however many years um that media has just amplified and come at us from every single angle a lot of the beverage publications like to, you know, rag on dry January and tell people that it's stupid and why do it? Just drink in moderation, but don't take a whole month off in it, which I think I just want to give a big fuck you to those publications and anybody who says that, because like, how dumb do you think we are? Like, I'm pretty dumb, but every single beverage publication, almost every one of them sells advertisement to alcohol producers. So of course it behooves them not to encourage people to do dry January. But but I only noticed that in the last couple of years. And honestly, it would probably be better for them if they did encourage people to do it and sort of attacked it from the other side and embraced it and kind of figured out some marketing to uh to to stand behind it. So anyway, just had to had to get yeah. that off my chat. No, I agree. And I think you're seeing that in many industries where things are changing. Um you know, there's, I'm curious to know your thoughts, but obviously the last few years, um, there's been a big push in the sort of low elk and non-alcohol spaces from brands that are being created left and right. And I was, um, you know, someone who almost launched something in that space a few years ago. Um, I've seen now a number of companies there, it started with a few and now it's, it's more than I can count, um, have launched. And I think, you know, when you're talking about these big, um, you know, these big industries that are pushing and kind of uh, making people feel dumb for thinking about dry January, it's obvious that they're scared and insecure about where their market is heading, right? And so I think you're right that it would be a lot better, it would be a better move for them to uh, be a little bit more transparent and at least acknowledge it and then use that as a brand building opportunity to, you know, build some sort of trust or, or whatnot with the people drinking their stuff versus you know, saying that it's basically non-existent and even going as far, like you said, to uh, talk shit. So I, I think um, those those types of brands are time limited at this point. Yeah, 
Okay, so let's, I want to talk about a few of the reasons as to why we do dry January or why people do it in general. So I'm just kind of spitballing off the top of my head here. So one example, obviously, is that we tend to overindulge in the months of November and December. So that's one reason, just to kind of slow down, uh, maybe just, you know, take a little, do a little cleanse. A lot of people, other than, you know, not drinking alcohol, tend to change their diet or change up their fitness routines a little bit in January. So overindulgence around, you know, the fourth quarter, that's one reason. Another reason, and this certainly speaks uh, true to, you know, friends of ours and and any of us really, um, but certainly in the service industry, restaurant industry, wine industry is saves you a little money. Um, I mean, without question, we tend to, uh, we tend to spend more than our share of uh, dispensable income on expensive beverages. So you do save a little bit of money depending on who you are. And then there's a lot of people who I think do it surely to try to lose some pounds uh, again, sort of after the holidays. What for what reason are you doing dry January? Um, I'm actually doing dry January with uh, as a challenge with uh, my girlfriend. So we, um, you know, I think last year was a tough year for everyone, and. Um, despite not, you know, going out as much, we, we started things like making drinks at home and trying to be creative about kind of just how we spend time together, given that, you know, a big chunk of the year, we are sort of on lockdown. Um, and so, you know, making cocktails is fun. Drinking wine is fun, but then it becomes more of a thing you do just like you were doing before every time you were going out. And so, you know, we're just being conscious of it and, uh, decided to just, to just do it, um, for that reason, just to kind of let up probably, you know, for what you said, you know, after the holidays and, and everything. Um, and not that we, you know, we're drinking every night and sitting in our apartments, that sort of thing. Um, it was more so just like as part of a bigger kind of health, wellness, fitness type challenge that we decided to do, um, together. So pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. So I, I, this is just for my own sort of selfish purposes. I, I want to share with you an experience that I went through last year. Okay, so what reason am I doing this? I don't even really know. I, I guess just sort of some combination of all of it. But uh, la over the last year, um, I think, I don't know this for sure, but I probably lost about at least 10, if not 12 or even 15 pounds because my job previously, I, I left my job at the New York Wine and Grape Foundation um, toward the end of March, uh, unrelated to the pandemic. And that job had me traveling quite a bit. And it's funny when I think back to my early professional years of traveling as a musician, that was a time in my life when I gained weight too. And one of the reasons is, is, you know, not just because you're on the road and in airports and eating shitty airport food or, uh, you know, side of the highway food, but also just when you're in hotels so much is out of your control, right? And the travel makes you tired, even if there is a gym at the hotel or whatever, and there's a zillion ways to work out in your hotel room, you know, using YouTube or whatever it is. I just was never, I didn't always have the energy for that. Traveling really took a lot out of me. So I, I sort of know now that I can't really 
for my own well-being, I can't have a job that requires me to travel uh, on any sort of like weekly or even monthly basis. So I know that I know that now. But there was something else. When I moved to the Hudson Valley, I moved up here September of 2019. Shortly after being here, I started feeling like like basically like sick and like I had a cough, my breathing was not as good. So I went to the doctor and I was new to the area, so I just went to like an urgent care place. And they're like, um, yeah, you probably have strep throat or something. They gave me some antibiotics. Antibiotics didn't work. Okay. I go back a couple of months later. I'm like, yeah, I was here. They gave me antibiotics. They didn't work. They're like, well, you know, it's probably a virus like bronchitis or something like that. There's really not much you can do. Just sort of wait it out or whatever. Um, and, and that was that. And like, when I tell you that my breathing was tough, I could not run a mile. Now, running a mile around here is tough because basically I'm sort of in this valley between mountain ranges, so there's not a lot of flat ground. So you're you're running through hills and, and basically like foothills of mountains. But even so, I mean, I, I'm a pretty fairly athletic person. You know that. I used to run six miles regularly, uh, no problem, over the Williamsburg Bridge back, right? Loved it. I literally could not run a mile without just seriously huffing and puffing and having to stop. Finally, it got so, it became so bothersome. I, I just, I needed to get a different doctor. So I got a regular, um, you know, family doctor and literally within like 30 seconds, this guy's looking at my chart and he's, he's asking me some questions. He's like, so you have a history of asthma? I'm like, yeah, but it hasn't bothered me since I was a kid. And he's like, okay, and environmental allergies. I'm like, yep. He's like, well, welcome to the allergy valley. He's like, that is why you're experiencing these problems. He's like, this area of the country is so harsh on environmental allergies and asthma. Yada, yada, yada. Turns out there's a pill for it that he put me on. And literally in days, I was a new person. So that was another reason that I realized that I gained weight was because I couldn't work out around here. And it wasn't until like April of last year that I, that I got on this pill, which I take once a day in the evening. It was just a total game changer. Have you ever heard of anything like that? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of examples. I think, um, you know, environmental things are always really interesting, especially, um, I mean, I would say that your case something as simple as that. Um, that's the whole time you've been talking that that was my hunch sitting in my head is that you'd move to the Hudson Valley, which is like heavy in nature and, uh, you know, environmental changes that things that don't go away within a week, like something like bronchitis that, you know, is caused by a, a virus, you know, it's basically a respiratory infection that improves by itself, you know, within days to weeks at, at most. Um, yeah, it's the first thing I thought was something maybe in your environment. So, um, you know, and allergies are big. It could mean a billion different things. You could have mold in your house. You could, you know, be allergic to the the dust. I mean, they, the list is long. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know what they put you on. Um, I'm far enough away from medical training to not stay up with that sort of thing. But um, it, it totally makes sense to me. Well, it really sucked at the time, I can tell you that. Um, yeah, 
But uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Seeger, uh, over at the uh, over at the uh, the place, whatever you call it, over there in Rhinebeck. Anyway, um, so that was uh, that was that was frightening, but that's uh, feeling much better. And I mean, besides all the terrible things that happened in 2020, I myself did have a lot more time to exercise and sort of get back into shape. So I'm in a place where I, uh, I feel pretty good now, but I mean, you wouldn't believe how hard it was for me to like kick these pounds compared to what it used to be, um, which I guess is just getting older, but like my running route now, it's like six and a half miles through these mountains. Like you can't run 20 feet before you're going uphill or downhill again up here. And I think that if I was working on the floor of a restaurant five nights a week too, I would even, I would be even skinnier. Um, but, uh, you know, that'll, that, that'll happen again soon enough, but boy, it does yeah, become I, I, harder I think, to get into shape. Don't, yeah. I was going to say, I think people don't realize how much, um, sort of your regular boring day-to-day activity, even stuff, you know, such as walking outside actually has a pretty long-term, um, you know, Im- impact on your health. You know, if you're the, even if you work out once a day for a half an hour or something, but if you're sitting on your couch the rest of the time, I mean, it's, it's really, truly a game changer. If you're, if you're active throughout the day in other ways, even in like small ways, like walking outside or walking around a restaurant during a, you know, seven hour shift or something like that. It's, it's truly, um, it, it makes a huge difference. Yeah. I mean, just certain clothes that I have that I, that I try to put on now, like don't even fit. And they're from like the days when I was working five nights a week on a restaurant while also running, you know, five, six miles, like five days a week in in the city. Um, So I I, I gotta, I don't know. I don't know what else to do, but maybe, maybe there's nothing I can do. And uh, you know, until I'm uh, sort of actively working again until uh, or, and in addition to, uh, the exercise. So anyway, well, dry January um, helps. Yeah, we'll see. But, uh, you know, when you're not, when you're not, when you don't have that, uh, that glass of wine or that, uh, you know, Campari spritz at the end of the day, you tend to indulge in some other, some other treats, whether it's that extra slice of pizza or, you know, bowl of Captain Crunch or something like that. So we'll see, uh, <laughs> if that does help. <laughs> Okay, another question I have, and I want you to riff on a little bit. And this again, I think is sort of for the the weight loss camp of people trying this out. So when it comes to eating and drinking, I once asked you, hey, if I, on the subject of like burning calories or or just weight loss in general, if I was to do one of these two things, order a, an entire pizza and take the whole thing down by myself or eat a modest, healthy something, but drink six beers, what is the lesser of the two evils when it comes to watching your weight? And you told me definitely drinking because there's no substitute <laughs> for diet. <laughs> do you stand by that advice today for for me and anyone else who is, is watching their calories 
So I don't remember this conversation. I'll, I'll say that first. Oh, it's but, documented um, in a text. I, I believe you, but uh, so I, let me let me let me. There's a lot to unpack here. So uh, first of all, eating an entire pizza by yourself is uh, it's just not a good move, no matter how you slice it. Oh, look at that. Um, it, it, it's you know. I, I disagree. I might I, do that tonight, but well. I think it's great for mental health, but um, one thing um, that I, and I could go down a rabbit hole with um, talking about just diet, forget about alcohol for a second, um, and just kind of how we eat as a population and, you know, the chronic disease, especially around um, metabolic uh, disease and things like diabetes in our country. Um, it's been actually really eye-opening. I've been for the last three months up until this week, I've been wearing a um, continuous blood glucose monitor on my arm, which I could talk about. And even for someone like me that's healthy, that eats you know healthy foods 95% of the time, even though every once in a while I'll eat a pizza by myself, um, it, it's amazing what you can learn from doing uh, or what you can what you can learn from doing that for. A few months just on on how things like carbs and sugar affect your blood sugar and what that means kind of for your like long-term health it's fascinating um so uh, on that sense i can't recommend that uh you know eating pizzas by yourself as a as a steady diet is a good idea that being said i think um you know also drinking six beers i can't unfortunately recommend as uh as a healthy move one because uh, most beers just carbs so it's kind of similar to eating a pizza anyway um and then you have sort of you know the effect of of alcohol which um, all right six I don't know if white following carbs. this or not six white no i mean okay fine so you get rid of the carbs six vodka and no sodas, i don't know an entire bottle of wine so i don't know if you've been looking at this recently but um there's been some changes happening or you know some some changes that haven't officially happened yet but they've been there's in the last call it two three years has been research papers that have come out to show that any amount of alcohol is dose dependently bad, meaning that it's not, um, you know, after a certain amount of drinks, it's not a healthy and moderation thing. It's uh, the more you drink, the worse off you are. There's a lot of nuance in that. So I'll, I'll say that's that's been one sort of thing that's been floating for the last uh, few years. A lot of this also comes down to genetics, specifically um, how certain people with certain genetics um, deal with alcohol. And so it's not as easy to say that more is... Um, worse for everybody, but uh, there's a lot of nuance there. And so, you know, right now it's, and, and the most recently, I think in the last um, few months, actually, they've actually been now recommending to move the daily drinking sort of safety zone for men down from two drinks per day to one drink per day. Um, and so to be in line with women. And so that's been very controversial also. And I, I only know this because I've been following the news headlines, um, but it stems from a lot of this research that's happened specifically around um, alcohol and its effect on uh, diseases like cancer and that sort of thing. So it's been really interesting to watch, um, which, you know, it, it's definitely, I'd be lying if I said it hasn't made me think more about even just my personal alcohol consumption. And I think, you know, going back to dry January, it's definitely one of the reasons, like I don't have a problem with drinking alcohol, but knowing that less is probably better um, I would rather be coming in somewhere close to the less side of things than, you know, even the average side of things. So, um, so yeah, now if we had that same conversation about eat a whole pizza or drink six beers and like a sweet green salad, I would probably 
off third option. But come on, between the two of the options that I asserted earlier, what is the lesser of the two evils just in terms of of weight loss? Um, I, I would say probably eat the pizza and leave the alcohol. Ah, and okay. I, that's for, for a, the, the quick version. If I, if you're going to make me pick one right now, obviously it depends on a lot of things, but the, the other effect of alcohol that, um, I don't think people think about that often is alcohol also does things like affect your sleep. And if your sleep is, um, poor, or if you're not getting as much sleep, or if you're not getting as, you know, the quality of sleep that you need that messes with um, your hormones that signal hunger or satiety. And so, you know, kind of going through working way, your way backward, um, if you're drinking and your sleep is being effective and now all of a sudden you are being more impulsive with what you eat, I mean, that plays a factor, as you mentioned earlier, about how, you know, you're more likely to crush a bowl of Captain Crunch or something. Um, and it really, it stems from that stuff as well. So alcohol plays with your system more than, you know, just being a source of calories or carbs or, you know, not great for your liver. Uh, it, it has a bigger effect. So the same can sort of be said uh, about carbs to some extent in general, but I would probably pick the pizza at that point. So, but eating also affects your sleep, doesn't it? Let's talk a little bit about, you know, times of day and, and optimal times for eating, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So this is actually something that I've um, learned a lot about. And I used to kind of not buy into the whole, you know, thing about don't eat right before you go to sleep. You know, I, and part of it was because a lot of this stuff was being pushed around by, you know, Instagram influencers and whatnot. And um, it, at some point, it was actually because I just never took the time to look into it. And, um, you know, I was always a fan of like, if you're hungry, you should eat. And I think going back now, that's, that's a pretty poor way to look at it also based on what I just mentioned about how, you know, your hormones can, um, basically influence how you feel hunger. Um, so you could, your body might not actually need calories, but you feel hungry. So you eat anyway. And so that's obviously, um, not a great place to be and invalidates kind of the eat when you're hungry sort of thing. Um, that's to say you don't always need to be like, quote, listening to your body, so, and, and that really came about after honestly wearing a glucose monitor for three months and just seeing, um, you know, what happened when I ate certain foods. Um, and so, you know, also what came out of that is I started doing intermittent fasting, um, which really actually changed how my body responded to, uh, carbs particularly, and really has changed how I eat in general. So, um, you know, with regards to when you should eat during the day. One thing that I noticed by doing this and measuring, I now track my sleep pretty extensively, uh, which I can talk about. But um, when you eat like a large meal before you go to sleep, and I mean, within like, call it an hour or two, um, your body basically has to spend time and energy to digest your food and, uh, you know, basically put the nutrients where they need to go. And what happens is your body temp increases in that process, and that actually goes against what needs to happen for you to fall asleep and to stay asleep. So body temp, body temp is actually a big part of of your um, of your sleep quality. And so when you disrupt that by eating late, uh, that's never a good thing. So um, it definitely does have an effect. And so now, you know, I try to not eat. I, I try to stick to the quote eating window. So I try to stop eating by like eight p.m. For example, if I'm going to go to sleep at eleven. 
Could could we go back uh, a little bit? You mentioned intermittent fasting. Could you talk about sort of the pros and uh, of that and maybe even uh, suggest a routine or two if, in fact, that is something that you would recommend that, that people try for weight loss or just health in general? Yeah, so uh, this is coming from the context of playing the long game. Um, and I mean that in the sense that there's a lot of aging research that's going on right now and has been going on for a long time um, that shows perhaps the biggest thing that we can do to extend life, you know, barring things like getting hit by a bus, um, is to actually eat less in general. And without diving all the way in the research, because it's extensive, one of the ways that you can do that is by doing intermittent fasting. And there's a whole slew of different ways to do intermittent fasting or fasting in general. Um, the, I, I think, any of them are good. I think the one that works for you is the one that you should do. And that really comes down to sort of your schedule and just kind of what you can tolerate. Um, but generally more is better up to a certain point. And so I've kind of played around with a few different versions of it. And the one that I do now is probably the most common one, which is basically, you know, you include your sleep in the fasting window. So if I stop eating, call it 8 PM the night before, I you know, you sleep all night, you're fasting because you're not eating. And then I try to make it till about 2 p.m. the next day. And so essentially you have an 18 hour window where you are not, um, where you're not eating. Um, so from 2 to 8 p.m., you eat whatever meals you need to eat. And the rest of the time you're, you know, drinking water or, or doing whatever. And so, you know, this is good in some sense because it helps you just from a very basic level well, there's a few things. You save money because you're eating less, which is an interesting effect that I wasn't really thinking of when I started this. Uh, and the second one is you're just eating more purposefully. So I find myself like cooking more, eating the right things most of the time um, because you just have to think about it a little bit more. And then the third thing is uh, by doing that, you're you're likely losing weight because you're probably in a caloric deficit or at least compared to what you were doing before. Um, and then on top of that, you're activating sort of all these pathways that are that are involved or implicated in the aging process. So, and I won't go into all that because there's a lot, and the research is is really um, sort of happening right now. But um, it's it's uh, it's really fascinating. And if anyone wants to read more about that, there's a really great book um, called Lifespan that is very good at breaking down all the research that was done by David Sinclair. Um, and breaks it down into like very digestible for the general public type of uh, information, for sure. All right. I want to shift and talk about fitness. What are you doing these days for, for working out? Oh, man. So I turned a little corner of my apartment uh, into like a home gym, essentially, Um earlier on, knowing that we were probably going to be in this situation for a while. Um, and so I, you know, like a, a lot of people stuck in New York, um, bought a Peloton, I gave in. Um, so I have, I have one of those sitting in my apartment and then I have a few dumbbells and like a little workout bench, um, and some like bands, you know, like stuff that you get like these giant rubber band things. So I basically do little strength workouts and um, Peloton once in a while, and uh, and that's, that's really about it. I went for a run yesterday in the cold with a buddy, 
Um, but I, I try to, I try to not, um, you know, when I think when, when we met and we were talking about fitness a lot, I was, I was like very deep in the New York city, like fitness space and doing all these crazy workouts that were, you know, as hard as it gets. And well, it's funny. You weren't, I remember you were not really a runner then you became that later, uh, sort of, you were, you were more of a gym rat when we met, but then later you got, you started running, you, you were in the, you were doing the Nike club for a while. Um, and then, and then you were a big fan of like that. What was it? Class pass. Yeah. I, I don't know about, I mean, class I did pass? class pass for a minute. Right. Yeah. Class pass was hot for a minute, but it was, it was really like, you know, all these sort of workout studios in New York that basically built their brand on being the hardest workout in town type of thing. And, you know, aside from like CrossFit, I never, I did CrossFit for like a hot minute, but I, it was never really my thing. So yeah, I got into running with the Nike crew. That was more of like a social thing, but it led me to running a half marathon, which was fun. Um, and yeah, it was just all these kind of like, you know, boutique workout classes that were just killing me and it feels good sort of, but then, you know, if you have any sort of sense of like, I, I guess with my background, you know, I'd be on a rotation at like the joint disease hospital, for example. And you'd see all these people come in in their forties and fifties, getting hip and knee replacements and all this. And I was like, wow, this is a, it's kind of like you have to see it to believe it sort of thing. And you just put two and two together. And I was like, all this stuff that we're doing right now, just long-term can't be good for you just because it's like good for the gram, you know? And so I, I've really shifted kind of my mentality where I'm not like killing myself anymore in in workouts, I'm trying to obviously do things that make you sweat, but, um, being really smart about, um, just mobility and, and like warming up and, and just doing things that are, are, that make more sense. You know, even if like on some days I'll put like an audiobook on my headphones and literally go for an hour walk. Like, I, I think that's a great thing that more people should do. What, uh, th this is often contested. I, f I feel like, and you probably know the science walking versus running. Um, what's the question? <laughs> I guess if you were, if you're going to walk or run the same distance is running that much better for your heart for burning calories, or essentially if you're walking the same distance, is it, is it pretty close? Yeah. So, uh, this is a, uh, I think this is where it gets down to sort of a person by person level. If you look at the meta analysis from, you know, for example, there's a number of papers that are out that track people that are runners or that run marathons. And it shows, I believe, and I have to go back and check, but I, if I'm restating this correctly, it shows that these people tend to um, live longer and, and, you know, have healthier hearts, for example. Um, but that's, that's one metric. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of other things that could happen from running if you're not the type of person that's built for running, like joint issues and, you know, inflammatory things and, and lots of stuff. And so I think it, it really becomes more of a conversation you have um, with your health professional at that point. I think for the majority of humans, I mean, there's also a ton of studies that show, um, you know, literally walking is one of the best things you can do for your lifespan. And um, I, I think it's, it's kind of funny because it sounds so simple. You know, I think especially when you're kind of wrapped up in the fitness world and you think you have to, you know, do a thousand burpees to feel like you're getting a good workout. 
um, going for a walk just seems sort of trivial, but um, the truth is it's actually not. And so I don't know if you were going to, if I were like for me, knowing that my body is not built to be a runner um, long-term, like if I had to pick something to do for the next 50 years of my life, I would go for a walk every day. But I think that's a very personal um, conversation. I mean, I fucking love walking. Like I, I went for, I have this running route I mentioned earlier um, that I like around here. It's round trip, six and a half miles. And I just didn't feel like running yesterday. So I walked it, which takes a really long time. But, yeah. you know, like we said, you put an audiobook on or a um, couple of podcasts. And, and yes, for me, that is like the best way for me to sort of just find space and kind of enjoy uh, my area up here. And it was pretty cool because I noticed, um, on this particular route, there's a few houses that had some Trump flags and one of them, the biggest one actually took it down. So, you know, it's a little oh, things. Okay. Look at that progress. <laughs> All right. Um, I, I do want to shift and, and, uh, while I have you here, talk a little bit about restaurants, but anything, anything more that you want to, that you think, you know, I or anybody who listens to this could benefit from in terms of a month of, of intense, uh, you know, cleansing or, or fitness or just wellness in general, uh, you know, more so than we allow ourselves the rest of the year. Any, any quick, quick pointers? You know, one, one thing that I will say that's really interesting, and this comes from um, the fact that behavioral change is nearly impossible, just as humans, we're really bad at it. Um, and you know, I, there's lots of even studies that show, you know, people, it takes a heart attack for people to stop smoking. And even then not everybody stops smoking after a heart attack. So, you know, it, it takes like a form of, of almost dying to actually make some sort of behavioral change. So one of the things that I've found that's really helped is ha like, like I said, I was wearing this, um, continuous glucose monitor for the last three months. And even though like, I know what eating a pizza does to your blood sugar, there's a difference between knowing that and being educated versus actually seeing your own data. And so I think one thing that's been fascinating, if you're going to do a month um, of dry January, or if you're going to commit to a month or whatever timeline of making a health change, um, one thing that really helps, it's helped me and I know it's helped a lot of other people from sort of falling off the you know rails to actually being consistent after you do that, which I think is the you know, big problem with New Year's resolutions. Obviously, most people don't keep them. Um, I think it's having some sort of measurement or, or collecting some sort of tangible data that you can actually look at and and not just say like, oh, well, I, I should be theoretically doing better because I didn't drink all month. Like if you don't actually truly feel it or if you don't actually see it, I, I think you're, you know, what's the motivation to stick with something? So if there's anything you can do to track stuff and have actual data, I think that's a really big plus as far as um, building good habits and, and keeping things going, you know, into the future. All right. Good stuff. Um, so while I have you here, uh, you, you may remove your nutritionist and personal trainer hat now and put back on your, your hospitality and restaurant industry veteran hat. Um, in the in the before times, uh, before the pandemic, if you can think back that far, where were uh, where were if you were going to go out? And I know you're you're a busy guy and uh, and a disciplined guy, but 
if you were going to go out to eat and drink a little bit, where where were you going? What were some places that were interesting to you in New York City? Yeah, the good the good days, man. I would love to um, have some of those opportunities right now. One of the spots that I was going actually pretty regularly um, in sort of the two months leading up to the you know start of COVID was actually Marta, um, mostly because their stracciatella pizzas were just you know mind blowing, and uh, our office the office I had was on Bowery, and so it was like a quick shot uptown after work, and at that point days were pretty stressful and, you know, we were working till all day until probably like eight or nine. And so, um, it became sort of like a, a post work, um, I don't know, mental health activity, I'll call it to go and crush two of those pizzas and have a Negroni at Marta. So that was one spot that I would, I would, uh, <laughs> I can't, I can't wait to be, um, sitting back at, at the bar there. Um, and then, uh, Similarly, there was a good amount of Charlie Bird. Um, and then, you know, as you know, I, so I live in Tribeca and uh, it was very easy for me to pop over a few blocks and go visit Paul over at uh, at Terroir. So that was kind of my triangle for a while, just because I didn't have a lot of time and it was easy and going places, you know, uh, with people, you know, is just a very comforting sort of thing. definitely all solid spots uh i i feel like i definitely took advantage of the beverage programs at marta and mylino in particular uh i mean such such good value for some extraordinary italian wines that i mean if you tried to do as well in burgundy bordeaux champagne or napa i mean you'd be paying like five times the price so yeah, I really hope those those two places come out on the other side still uh, still going. Um, I think it's crazy. Yeah, and- Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say I can I can give another shout of a spot that opened right before COVID and then kind of you know shut down during shutdown time and has now been kind of you know they were open over the summer that I have been frequenting a lot, which is the wine program being run by you know sort of ex. Um, you know, in the industry for a long time type of people, but it's 232 bleaker that became, I don't know if you're familiar, but that became a very, um, a very frequented spot for me during the the warm days. And even up until it got pretty cold recently, um, same kind of wine program, um, run by Theo Lieberman, if you remember. And Suzanne Cup. Yeah who was the tavern sous chef when I started working at Gramercy Tavern. I have not made it there yet. Man, I I feel like that place had a pretty short run before the pandemic hit, didn't it? Like a a month or two. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope they make it out too. killer, killer, killer place. Like amazing. I don't doubt that. Um, One thing that I think is sort of nuts, and this is – kind of where I want to take this conversation in terms of a broad look at the restaurant industry, sort of specific to New York City. In the nine years or so that we've been, that we've known each other, we have seen restaurants open and then we have seen those same restaurants close. Some of those restaurants were even highly critically acclaimed. And there was... 
now I, f- I feel like it's almost public knowledge, but you and I probably both know that in the before times, there was there were a lot of problems with the restaurant industry. The pandemic has exposed a lot of those, but without question, the restaurant industry was pretty fucked in a place like New York City. And little by little, we were starting to see that leading up to the to the pandemic, whether it just be whether that was closings of places or restaurateurs or chefs being uh, you know, exposed for sexual assault or bullying, or uh, certainly the wine industry got totally rocked uh, in in terms of sommelier culture with sexual assault. There, there have been a lot of problems, which I think we, you, we, everyone agrees. And something that I've observed during the pandemic is that there doesn't seem to be much talk about a new restaurant model for when we get out of this. All I hear is a lot of begging for stimulus. And I know I sound like a snooty brat talking about this right now because, you know, my heart does go out to to everyone in the service industry. And we talk on this podcast a lot about jobs and how how to keep working and how to go after jobs both during the pandemic and after the pandemic. And, and those are those are that's a subject that I want to keep going on. But the restaurant industry needs to change. And I'm wondering what you think about in terms of, or if you have any ideas as to how that might happen. Because I gotta say, I see people like Danny Meyer and Tom Colicchio, and I worked for both of them, going on CNN and talking a lot about stimulus. I see master sommeliers, people like Bobby Stuckey, talking a lot about stimulus. I don't see anybody offering any sort of strategic or action plan as to what are we going to do to change the already broken model when we're out of this? Yeah, I, I have a lot of thoughts about this. And you know, for someone that has been mostly in the business world now and outside of sort of the run around the floor pour wine business for the last few years, um, I, I, I definitely, um, I think about it a little differently. And number one, you're absolutely right. I mean, the restaurant industry has the model just, you know, hanging on by a thread month. I mean, I didn't even mention the razor thin margins that restaurants were making and that everybody was sort of just okay with that. That's crazy to me. Yeah. Now that's where, that's kind of where I'm going. So like the, the model of hanging on by a thread because your margins are tiny um, and you have to rely on, you know, you're basically other than people like Danny Meyer, for example, you're literally subsidizing your payroll by the public and your customers paying the wages of your staff, aka tips. So, so one, your margins are basically nothing, and you can't even pay your people a living wage. Um, you know, it, how in the world does that sound like a smart business? And the answer is, it's not. It's just something that we need and all love. And so it goes on until you have something that shakes the system. And I, you know, it, to be honest, it probably wouldn't take something nearly as big as COVID to even shake that system. Um, I mean, this is why restaurants start and go out of business, you know, in the first three months, like clockwork, um, especially in a place like New York, where you have high rents, you know, you throw COVID on this and it absolutely exposes just all of the 
all the issues. And so, you know, I agree with you. There's a lot of begging for stimulus. I think a lot of that is warranted in the sense that, you know, protecting people is what should be happening, not necessarily protecting businesses. I think if you run a poor business and, you know, which a lot of restaurants are unfortunately poor businesses, that's part of capitalism. There's, you know, nothing that says we have to save businesses. We do have to take care of people. And I think those things are oftentimes lumped into the same thing. And it's just for obvious reasons why it is, but, but they're different. And so, you know, yeah, stimulus is great, but the money should be going into, into pockets of people. The one thing I will say is there are some people that made extraordinary, I won't even say pivots, but uh, yeah, maybe pivots. I mean, take for example, Nick Kakonas from, you know, Alinea. And I don't know if you've been following, but they had their biggest day ever as far as revenue during COVID doing crazy, you know, um, takeout. And I won't even call it takeout because I'm sure it's an unbelievably different experience in getting takeout from a restaurant. But their biggest day in history literally came during COVID because of the way that they rearranged their entire restaurant and like set it up. And you can argue very easily that, you know, they had the resources and whatnot to do it, but they were able to hire back like something like 70 or 80% of their people um, during like this shitty time for everybody else. And so, you know, my, my quick thoughts on it are, I agree with you, there needs to be a model change. Um, I think what's happening in, in New York City in general during this time, for example, with, um, you know, the street sidewalk dining that now is going to become permanent um, going forward, I think people capitalizing on that in ways that um, are new and exciting are, you know, if you can double the capacity at your restaurant and become the winner take all on your block, you're winning. Um, that's very different. Um, I also think, you know, the restaurant industry isn't somewhere historically that has ever embraced tech. Um, and, you know, that's changed a little bit with sort of the delivery scene with, um, you know, people like Uber Eats and, and DoorDash and, and whatnot. But those also have their downsides. Um, you know, obviously taking 25 or 30% of your margin off the top is, is not great. But this is an industry that's been slow to move on all that stuff. And so now you're starting to see restaurants, um, you know, move very quickly, running their own delivery programs, getting their own e-com sites up, and just doing stuff like, you know, that started happening everywhere else 10 years ago. So I think that's part of it. And I think um, people just need to get creative. And I think you need to to realize that the way it's always been done in the space is probably, um, it, it's not over, but it's probably in your best interest to uh, start really thinking about how things are going to be different in the future, for sure. Because the, the previous model, as you said, just, it, it worked until it didn't. Well, and I know that everybody, you know, will be excited about the the slightly more relaxed laws as it as they relate to outdoor dining in a place like New York City now but I don't think that historically restaurants have been very good at looking at data and really looking at numbers and when I see when I think about a restaurant getting excited because their capacity is now doubled you know six months out of the year I also think well is that restaurant thinking about how much more labor is going to go into that like I see this with wineries a lot wineries love their direct-to-consumer sales because they get a better margin than selling their wines to a distributor you know, who then sells to on-and-off-premise accounts. So they sink all this money into their tasting rooms and and into their wine clubs. Yes, tasting rooms and wine club direct-to-consumer sales 
you do get a better margin, but it's not free. It's not free money. Every time you buy something for your tasting room, whether that's a big screen TV to show football games on Sunday or a grand piano so that you can have live music, you know, for somebody's wedding. Every time you do that, you decrease your margin, making it closer to that wholesale distribution distributor that you hate to sell your wines to. And again, are restaurants really thinking about how much labor is going to have to go into, into really doing outdoor dining well? So that, that's something that concerns me as much as it does excite me. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, look, it's, it's definitely part of it. And I think um, this begs a question. To your point, data has not also been a thing that has been um, really embraced in the space. I think it's in a lot of ways, the space has always been similar to other sort of old school industries where there's checkboxes for the way that things have always been done. Right. And that's just how they are. And I think for this going forward, that just can't be the case anymore. And even down to the point of like, you know, expecting prices to go up. Like, I think that's just going to happen. It's going to have to happen. It's going to at least be part of the puzzle in most cases. And whether that's because, um, you know, restaurants are actually paying their people on payroll more money or um, the cost of ingredients have gone up or whatever, it's, it's going to be part of the thing. And I think, um, you know, as the general public visiting restaurants, I think it's something that um, we're going to have to get used to. I think we've probably been, as crazy as it sounds, living in New York, we've probably been underpaying for what we've been asking for for a while. Well, you're right. And it's going to get more expensive at some restaurants. And then, frankly, restaurants are just going to become a lot worse than they than they once were if they want to make a better margin as we come out of this pandemic. And you know, you mentioned Nick Kakonis, and yeah, he is he is on the very, very short list of people in the restaurant industry that I think at this point at least need to be studied. Uh, and <laughs> It yeah. has just done wildly cool and innovative things. Uh, and somebody else that I'm going to, you know, sort of take a risk and but, mention. And, and just, just, to go, just to go back for a second, though, Nick, mm-hmm. when you look at Nick, he was trained as a derivatives trader. You know, he, he's a, this is a guy that embraces data, embraces technology. And that's where you start to see some of this stuff happening. And to be honest, you know, you look at most restaurants and, and how they're started, it's a lot of it's the passionate founder thing, right? It's a family business. It's, and, and that's what it is. That doesn't mean that everybody was a derivatives trader. So like in a lot of ways, Nick is an anomaly just by the nature of kind of how the industry is structured and, and the people that, uh, you know, run businesses in the space. And so in some sense, it's, he's also like a complete outlier, but obviously he's proven that the model can work. It's just, um, you know, it, more people have to start thinking like that or, have to start finding people that can help them think like that for sure. Yeah. Um, and honestly, the only, I, I wish there were more that I, that I could cite and I'm sure that there are. And I apologize if I'm forgetting anybody who's, who's really out there, um, you know, sharing good information about this stuff, but you know, David Chang, Momofuku. And I know, I know that he has been exposed recently as possibly a monster that he very well may be. Um, but I mean, the, he has some ideas that I've not really heard anybody else leaning into. And honestly, he hasn't even 
gone super granular on on record with them. I tend to tend to hear him uh, in interviews and things like that, and and he'll touch on these ideas that I wish he would go deeper on. So, like, let me give you an example. He he's always been fascinated in, with fast food, right? And on the subject of like bullying in a kitchen, right? Yelling and just you know traumatizing people, which we all know has happened for a very long time in the restaurant industry. Um, he talks about when you walk into a McDonald's, you don't see anybody yelling in the kitchen there, right? So that's just that's just one sort of fact about fast food. And it is kind of interesting. You know, why is that? Why is it that th- those operation those operations go sort of smooth enough such that there doesn't have to be that sort of just, I don't know, unnecessary tension in, in the business. Now, the other thing that he talks about is a lot of delivery, a lot of just um, things that, again, sort of fast casual or fast food restaurants do. So for example, we all know that food is not of the highest caliber at these places. It shows up frozen in bags and it is essentially just reheated and thrown together, you know, at, at whatever, the Wendy's or the McDonald's. Now, imagine that, but at a fine dining level. So if there was some sort of prep kitchen center, right, in a place, I don't know, some warehouse in Midtown or New Jersey or something, right, and it was a big kit, like a big sort of prep kitchen center. So you have people working on French food, Italian food, Asian food, whatever it is. And then those ingredients and those, let's even say near complete dishes are delivered daily to the fine dining restaurant who then only has to have a fraction of the amount of the kitchen staff that they once had to have to assemble and complete the dishes on site. I would think that you could probably execute some pretty extraordinary dishes and fool some people in blind taste settings. What do you think about that model as a potential future to to improve the margins? Yeah, well, uh, I think it's interesting. I think you're starting to see that now um, with cloud kitchens or ghost kitchens. Um, I, I don't know if you've been following, but you know Travis Kalanick, the ex-Uber CEO, uh, his new company is basically doing just that for companies that exist primarily to have delivery service where you basically have a communal kitchen where everything gets built and then you have Uber Eats or Postmates or whoever it is literally just come pick up food and deliver it to people. So, you know, what you just described is almost an offshoot of that, but instead of Uber coming to pick it up and going to your house, you know, it's going to whatever restaurant um almost in like a, you know, it's not made to order in that sense because uh I don't think that the timing would make sense, although who knows? Um, I'm sure someone could figure that out. But I mean, you know, it depends on, look, if you're if you're going with a model like that, then the restaurant is dependent on a third party that's making their food, right? So like for every problem you solve, I can imagine a bunch of other problems. And at the end of the day, the margin that you save could easily be eaten up by whatever margin you're paying for that person to make your food if you are, you know, at their mercy. So like if it's one person, or one company that's doing that, you know, it's, uh, it's a little bit different than if you had your choice, you know, to work with 10 of them or something. I mean, look, there's, there's, you know, 
deals that you could work out in that sense. And it's an interesting thought. I think that you'd probably have pushback from every chef on the planet in New York that wants control over, um, you know, the way their food tastes and looks and, and smells and the entire experience of the food. I just, I can't imagine chefs being cool with that sort of scenario unless it was for things like stock, you know, or store well, components well, that is, were. I mean, this is where what, again, what David Chang says, this, this is, yeah, restaurants are going to get worse. That this is that. It's, I mean, it, it's possible. I mean, who knows? I think it's going to be an interesting thing. One thing I can tell you for sure is that definitely things are going to have to change from a, a business level. Otherwise, like, look, if not, if things go back to normal, let's just say everybody, whatever gets vaccinated, COVID goes away, we're in 2022 or 2023, whenever, whenever it is. And things go back to normal and restaurants continue to function as they have always. It's literally a ticking time bomb until the next thing derails them. Like it's the business model doesn't work and it's got to change. So it, you would think it would be better in your best interest to to be ahead of the curve. But um, I'm sure that won't happen for most of them either. I think maybe the top 10% that end up being the top 10%, it will be because of trying to be ahead of the curve. And I think the rest will go through this same sort of thing, um, you know, over and over again. All right. Before we finish up, let's let's just talk wine a little bit. I'm curious as to if your um, if your thinking has changed or kind of where you're where you're at these days with with wine drinking. Um, what do you think in terms of the way over the last ten years that in New York City in particular, I there there's let's call the last 10 years the the sommelier boom i think it's safe to say that that was a thing it happened maybe it's over um and i don't know if it was the pandemic that ended it i think it might have been also some bad behavior um but it seems like there to me and i i this became violently clear to me after I was out of restaurants and more on the sort of marketing side of wine that the wines that you and I kind of came up working with in New York City, these are wines that like 1% of people who drink alcohol ever drink or think about. And I'm talking about, you know, um, grower champagne or, you know, (laughs) any burgundy or even... Uh, the sort of larger category of natural wine. Um, these are very niche genres. We, I didn't realize that throughout the you know the last ten years or so, but I, I definitely have a different sort of view of it all now. And I'm curious as to where your thinking is, because when I look at social media and when I read beverage journalism, it seems to me like everyone's just talking to each other. It's just like the wine industry uh, is, we're we're just talking to each other. If Eric Asimov writes a column in the New York Times, that column is for, you know, the the sommelier at um, Charlie Bird to read. Or if some influential buyer at a shop puts a photo of something or writes a little blurb about some biodynamic burgundy producer, again, it's clear to me that that is also just deflecting back to another person 
in the industry. And the 99% is really normal ass people that just want to like kind of get a buzz. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. for so long, I was obsessed with this 1%. And, and it's really been sort of refreshing to take a step back and look at it from another angle and understand that are we really even being hospitable with this way of thinking? Yeah, interesting. So, uh, look, I you know I got all my training in wine from Paul Greco, right? And it, I would even say that one percent is like uh, that's even like way high. I think the stuff that you know the seventy or ninety glasses by the glass on the terroir menu at any given time were probably in like the top. 0.01% of like what anyone's ever seen before if you're taking wine as like a whole, right? So one, we like, we were in a small bubble within a bigger bubble that's New York City where we're just spoiled to hell with like the best wine that you could ask for in the country. And I know that's maybe controversial to some people, but I think it's 100% true. And you start to realize that when you just go anywhere else in the country, even other big cities like LA, like, yes, there's good wine to be found. Yes, there's a few hot spots. Yes, California makes good wine blah 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 but like it, it it's it's very different um in new york and i say that admitting that we're just very spoiled with it so you know honestly when you like wines like that and you learn about wines like that yeah i still love those wines i think for me where i started the the wine world got a little weird for me was you know after you go through the court and you go through like some stuff and you work on the floor it, the sort of quote, what you said, the the rise of the Psalm thing becoming kind of like a celebrity status, you know, you start to draw in a lot of other types of people into the space to do the Psalm life thing for reasons that are probably outside of like, I just like wine. And, you know, I'll never forget one time some came into terroir and dropped his resume off. And he said he just, you know, certified and he was a Psalm and all this sort of stuff. And he sat down for happy hour and I offered him some free sherry because at the time we were doing free sherry for happy hour, if you remember those days. And he asked me what sherry was. And I literally, that was the moment where I was like, okay, this is now a thing where everybody wants to be a Psalm because it's cool to be a Psalm. And that's fine. It's just like anything else, the influencer thing on Instagram. I mean, there's countless examples of this, but you know, so that was one side of it. And then I remember when I was, you know, in tasting groups with, you know, Psalms that were higher up on the ladder of Psalm life, you know, doing their, doing their studies and whatnot, the amount of just like, I don't, I don't want to call it arrogance because I think that's probably the overused cliche term in the space, but to some level, it was just like this um, seriousness that was so unbelievably unwarranted that, it was just like, why is anyone doing this? You seem like the most unhappy people on the planet and you're getting caught up between the difference of like blueberry and strawberry, you know? And like, at the end of the day, it's not that serious. And at the end of the day, nobody fucking cares. And so for me, I just, I kind of like, I stopped, I stopped caring at that sort of level because it, it took everything about it out of it for me. And so now I'm like stuck somewhere in between where like, you know, I fucking, yeah, I love the wines that Paul pours and like, I love girl or champagne and all the other fun things just as much as any other wine nerd does. But like, like, am I up to date on what's going on right now? Absolutely not. Like, do I care? No. Like most of the time when I go to a restaurant now, I most of the time don't even want to make a decision on what I'm drinking, you know? So 
I don't know. I think I don't think that answered your question at all. But I found particularly, like you said, the last 10 years to be a very interesting sort of um, shift. I don't even know shift, but there's been a lot of interesting changes in the wine world on the Psalm side of things. And there's been a lot of changes for me with how I just consume wine in general. And mostly in the sense now that uh, I don't take it seriously anymore. I just drink what's good. I think that's that's a good way to be, drink what's good. And just to kind of pull it back full circle to to how I sort of uh, brought, this, brought up this topic, that sort of 1% bubble within the bubble, um, that way of, of creating a wine list, I mean, those wine lists were the ones at the restaurants that unfortunately we've seen close such as Rouge Tomat or Pearl and Ash and Rebel. And these were all well before the pandemic. So I'm just not sure that, again, that style or that seriousness or that pedigreed program, whatever you want to call it, really is good for the margins at the end of the day for the restaurant world. Yeah, I mean, some of those places you just mentioned where I think if I remember correctly, or run by some of the same people. So I think that might be a, a, a thing to think about also. But, um, you know, look, I think if you're being so serious about wine and you run a wine-focused restaurant, you have a smaller, um, you know, addressable market of people that you're going after. And I think if you are, like you said, one of the 99% of other people that just want to have a good time and drink whatever tastes good, I think if you're not um, communicating with those people in a way, or in, even worse, you're making them feel awkward when they're in your space, they're not coming, you know? And if they're not coming, you don't have a business. So I, I don't think there are enough Psalms in New York City that can sustain a restaurant if they're the only people that are eating there every day, you know? So uh, I don't know. I, I probably agree with you. All right. Well, that might be a good place to wrap. Um, kind of a kind of a downer note, but that's okay because it's kind of a downer time. But uh, we've got all that good uh, good stuff in here about dry January and health and wellness. So I really appreciate you coming on and chatting with me about this. Yeah, anytime. Hopefully, um, you know, we do this on less of a downer note at some point in the future when maybe uh, you know a lot of this stuff is is behind us. It looks like uh, that may uh, be within sight, so uh, I I'm sure we can uh, make that a reality. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Dave Miller for providing me intro and outro music. Check him out at davemillerguitar.com. And thanks again for listening throughout 2020 and to this first episode of 2021. Really look forward to doing this every week. Leave a comment at the Court Report website. Send us a note as to any sort of content you might like to hear about as it relates to the areas that we cover, typically uh, those in uh, the northeastern part of North America and a few other pockets elsewhere. All right, Sagan. Thanks again, brother. Talk to you soon. You too.